Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we talk to 25 of the world's best brewers and pick their brains for their tips, tricks, and secrets just for your pleasure and learning and something. (laughs) Now, between the two of us, uh, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, we're going to have some feedback from people. Uh, and then, of course, we're going to go to the brewery to discuss, well, what's going on in the beer world. And then a quick stop in the library to talk about, you know, whether or not the IBU continues to be a lie or if the IBU is becoming obsolete. And then in the brewery, we got a couple of new articles, a little bit more of your yeasty type stuff and hop compounds and CRISPR and the rest. If you know what CRISPR is, you know where we're going. And then we're going to swing by the lab and talk about last week's write-up of the cryo experiment that we did on last last episode's podcast. And, you know, see what people think out there and talk about some future directions that we're going to take it in before we announce what our next experiment's going to be that's going to be coming down the pike at you in short order. And then in the lounge, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk with Dick Cantwell, formerly of Elysian and now of Magnolia Brewing Company in San Francisco, California, and talk about his soon-to-be-released book, Eclectic IPA, and kind of dig into, well, you know, just what can you do to play around with an IPA that isn't just throwing more hops into different places, before finally we answer your questions, give you something other than beer, and get you on your way. So, Denny, that's a lot of talking. It is, man. It's a busy, busy show today. So we're going to have a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back and get on with things. So please stick around. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iodophore. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, host of HomebrewCon, aka the National Homebrewers Conference, aka the best beer event in the world. This year, HomebrewCon heads to Portland, Oregon, aka Beervana. HomebrewCon features brewing seminars, a trade show with the latest homebrew technology, and fun nighttime events that celebrate the awesome community of homebrewers. HomebrewCon is June 28th through June 30th. Visit homebrewcon.org to register. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Well, we're ready to get things underway here, and to kick it off, we have a few announcements. Uh, Drew, take it. Yeah, so first announcement is, if you didn't pay attention to the feed, last week's episode of The Brew Files, episode 36, was all about speed brewing, both how to speed up your brew day so you can get more beer done, and my favorite thing to do, how to speed up the time it takes to go from that brew day to when that beer is hitting your sweet, sweet lips. So go back and uh, give that a listen. It's a nice 41 minutes of Denny and I talking about our strategies, both to speed up your brew day and your brew life. 
And because we had so much fun with it the last time around, we're going to be doing another Brewing Disasters episode. So if you have any Brewing Disasters you'd like to have us talk about and share with everybody else so that maybe they don't feel so bad about their own, please send them to us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. We'll get your story on the show, and who knows, we might even call you and get you on the show, too. Yeah, and your disasters can be everything from you smashed your head, you burned your carpet, till you broke your favorite beer glass, or you forgot to say the right prayers and your beer turned out silly. Yeah, right. Uh, my incense didn't light, something like that. Hey, that's mine. Oh. <laughs> that's where I used it, buddy. Okay, and then, of course... If you're going to HomebrewCon next month, June, in Portland, Oregon. That's right, Portland, Oregon, Beervana. Well, don't forget, on that Wednesday before HomebrewCon starts, June 27th, we're going to be hosting a party with Brewcraft USA and Culmination Brewing Company, where Denny and I are actually going to be serving as the MCs. And it's going to start at 6 p.m. on 627. There's going to be games. There's going to be prizes. There's going to be lots and lots of terrible 80s music that Denny and I are choosing. If you have your favorite <laughs> 80s song, let us know. Denny's going to be in costume. I'm going to be in costume. Who knows? Will leg warmers make their way back? I don't know, but I know there'll be cold beer. So don't forget, <laughs> Culmination Brewing Company, 627, 6 p.m., the party itself is free. There will be raffle tickets to buy for giveaways for charity. You know, but hey, come have a beer. There's lots of really great breweries and food trucks that are going to be there. You know, and the other thing I want to mention in conjunction with HomebrewCon is that we're going to be recording a podcast there live on Friday afternoon from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. at the Brewcraft USA booth, which is booth 702. So come on and stop on by. You'll have a chance to get an experimental brewing t-shirt because we're going to be giving away a t-shirt every 15 minutes. So come on by and get yours. And finally, we want to remind you about our affiliate sponsor, brewswag.com. If you're looking for uh, brewing gear, uh, any kind of like, uh, well, brewswag. Go to brewswag.com, check out what they've got. They've got t-shirts, they got openers, they got glasses, they got all kinds of cool stuff. So go there and get your brew swag. Yeah, get your swag on. That's right. Now, don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review at Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year and is rapidly closing up, is... It is Habitat for Humanity, and we're going to send them some money once you send us some money. It's a great organization. You guys have all heard about them. You know about them. They're building houses for people all over the place, helping people build their own houses. Great thing. Throw us a few bucks. We'll pass it along to them, and everybody can feel good. Yeah, and don't forget, I mean, right now, uh, all the Patreon funds that we collect actually do go to our charitable causes, so keep that in mind, and make sure you tell our sponsors that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing so that we can keep doing something fun like that. It's time. It's time for... Feedback! feedback. 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 And our one piece of feedback today comes from uh, Brian Mills, who says... Denny and Drew, I don't enter a lot of competitions, but I found the Brew Files episode with Nick Corona very informative. One of the things I've recently started doing is filling my bottles in an empty fermenting bucket. I put all the bottles that I want to fill in there, or as many as I can fit at one time. Once the bottles are in there, I use a beer gun to purge them all with CO2. Generally, I purge them much longer than what's needed. My thought is I'm essentially also purging most of the air from the bucket as well. I know it won't be 100%. In my mind, it's making a difference, and I haven't had any comments on oxidation since I started doing it. It also makes a nice catch container if you happen to get distracted while filling a bottle, 
and it overflows, or so I'm told because I would never disquirrel. When a bottle is filled, I lay the cap on the bottle while they're still in the bucket. Once all the bottles are complete, I then remove them to secure the cap. Once done, they can be rinsed off and dried if needed. It's been working pretty well for me, so I thought I'd share. Hey, you know, Brian, that's that's actually kind of a pretty good idea. I, mean, I agree. You're not you're not going to get 100% of the oxygen yeah. out of the bucket you know, with the beer gun purging. But you know what? Sure as hell beats not doing it. Yeah, I, I think so too, man. I think it's got to be better than uh, than not doing it. And I also think that uh, the spill catching idea is a great idea because I do tend to get distracted and over. Yeah, if only I thought about that when I was so. brewing in an apartment, filling bottles and had carpet. I'm I might have gotten my security <laughs> yeah, deposit back. Really? Oh well. So, and one other last piece of feedback. Yep. This is actually personal feedback uh, from us. Uh, you know, on the last episode when we had the Igors on, you know, that was kind of a new thing that we did to discuss the results of the experiment. Well, and we're wondering, what did you guys think? Did that actually uh, make, you know, some more interesting content there? Did you get more out of the experiment by us having the Igors on? I kind of think we did. I kind of thought it was a, a better way to approach it and, you know, really kind of made things, well, sing along a little bit more. Yeah, you know, it's always fun talking to those guys because we can sit here and uh, guess about how they're brewing and what they're doing, but there's nothing like uh, actually getting the word directly from the Igor's mouth. Yeah, it's always good to be able to pick people's brains and go, uh, wait, what happened? So, <laughs> and speaking of the experiment, we're going to actually be talking a little bit more about that experiment a little bit later today in the lab. So stay tuned for even more cryo content plus a new experiment. I guess before we can do that, we got to head over to the pub and have a beer, right? If you say so, I guess I'll have to. Yeah, right. See how difficult he is. Hey, stick around. We're going to head over to the pub and we'll see you when we get there. We'll be right back. Why Yeast Goes Rustic for this year's Private Collection Spring Release. Europe has long been exalted as the world's heart of brewing tradition, and it couldn't be truer today as styles like Berliner Weiss and Goza of Germany are being revived through the passion of home and professional craft brewers. Belgian styles have become the flagship beers of breweries all around the globe and continue to be the holy grail of mastery and sought-after beers. A lot of the flavor of these styles comes from the yeast and bacteria that have shaped the flavors of these regions into centuries of fine beer. Yeast is proud to bring our Berliner Weisse blend, Belgian Schelde Ale, and Britannomyces Clausenii to you in this European-inspired selection. These strains are available April through July at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. Welcome back. We have made our way over to the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of Everywhere and Nowhere in your town, USA, and we're having beers because what else would you do in a pub? Drew, what are you drinking today? Actually, so what I'm drinking is I'm drinking Ladyface Ale Company's uh, La Grisette. It's their take on a grisette a little bit bigger, you know, so about five point something percent. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those beers that just like my Saison that I always brew. It's just a wonderful tasting Belgian beer that you can just keep drinking lots and lots and lots of. Cool, man. That sounds great. 
Yeah, it's one of my favorite beers in LA. And about you? I'm drinking a Parat. Uh, I've been kind of on this Belgian kick lately, and uh, Parat is another one of those that I used to drink all the time, and uh, I haven't had one for a while. It's from the Van Steenberg Brewery, and I know that I've just butchered that pronunciation, but, uh, you know, what the heck. It, the yeast character kind of reminds me of a cross between, like, uh, like West Mall Triple and, uh, and Ardenne yeast, but the beer is uh, darker and uh, much bitterer, has more of a hop presence than either one of those. It, it's a 10.5% beer, so I'm sipping it slowly, but, man, I love this beer. Well, yeah, and it's it's great. I mean, to me, I always think it's funny, like with the things like Parat and Duval and those, where they, they get that little bit of extra sweetness at the yeah. end. Although I think more really like uh, Parat and Buccaneer, although Buccaneer is more red than Parat. Um, but yeah, it's it's always it's always interesting. There's always that little bit of extra candy sweetness. And one of these days, I want to break down and try and figure out the exact differences between, say, a triple and something like Parat and Duval, which is you know that golden strong. Uh, uh, angle you know actually like sit down and do an analysis yeah you know to me like the difference between like say a west mall triple and a and a duval is that the west mall triple uh has more phenolics to it and i think that it maybe has a little bit more apparent bitterness to it but you know that's how i perceive it yeah well let's go okay on. i think i think it's time to have more beer and more talking i agree and we want to start off uh with a shout out to our listener and buddy jm Jason Hammond. Uh, he's been on the program before several times. He's written in several times. And now we found out that uh, he's going to be leading a sour and barrel program for his local pub, Narrow Path Brewing in Ohio. And we just want to say to Jason, good luck, buddy. Hope you enjoy it. Yeah, you know, hey, it's the first step. You know, we've seen a lot of people do this sort of thing where they take that transition, they go into sour programs and barrel programs. And the next thing you know, well, they become a full-fledged brewer. Oh, don't wish that on the poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless that's what he wants. Right. But regardless. Seriously, Jason. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, ho- hope everything goes great, man, and that you really love what you're doing there. Uh, and so after congratulations, now, of course, we have to get on to the worrying aspect of things. There was an article in uh, The Takeout, which is part of Gawker and all that uh, thing. And talking about that beer brewed with Great Lakes water might contain microplastics. Oh, boy. Mm, Just, yummy. Yeah, man, as if uh, glitter in your beer wasn't bad enough. At least that's edible, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is a little more disturbing. So uh, University of Minnesota researchers did you know, uh, experiments looking at water in the Great Lakes and found a bunch of microplastics. Microplastics are essentially either... You know, things that like those little microbeads in your face cleanser or your toothpaste and sometimes or antibacterial soap or, you know, the breakdown of other plastic products finding their way into the water streams. And this is becoming more and more of a concern recently. And these are small little pieces of plastic. They say less than five millimeters in length. So, uh, well, they, f- they found that they're now starting to end up in beers. Yeah. And this is like even with people who filter their water, they're still getting these. Yeah, so like Great Lakes Brewing Company, which is you know a huge brewing company with a lot of water treatment and all that sort of stuff, is finding that sort of uh, sort of stuff as well that they have to start paying attention to. So, uh, yeah, this is uh, this is kind of scary. I don't know. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, you know, and it's not a problem that's going to be limited to just the brewing world either. 
No, and of course, you know, this is, I think, going to hit our smaller compatriots even more than, say, a brewery like Great Lakes. I mean, Great Lakes can afford to do a lot of work to get their water into tip-top shape. But, you know, if you're mom-and-pop brewery somewhere around the corner, you know, you're not necessarily going to have all the great filtration devices in place and be able to afford all that. So, you know, it's going to be problematic. And, yeah, this is not just going to be limited to the Great Lakes, obviously. This is just where the University of Minnesota researchers uh, went and did their studies. Uh, this is going to be a kind of a thing for just about everybody. Yeah, I think. right. Uh, sad, sad state of affairs, huh? Yeah, don't buy cleaners with microplastics. Yeah, really, man. Although, yeah, just just don't do that. You know, no matter where you live, whether you're in the Great Lakes or what, uh, you can help contribute to a solution by just not buying that stuff. There we go. And of course, now then, on better news, yes. that's also still beery science. Uh, the Brewers Association, uh, well, they announced their location for their public hop breeding program. Remember uh, last year, uh, the Brewers Association announced that they were going to actually fund uh, public hop breeding. Uh, this was kind of a thing that always used to be done, you know, by Anheuser Busch and those guys. You know, where they'd spend money to do uh, hop breeding, but then you know things have happened over time, and that money's disappeared from the big guys. And so the Brewers Association stepped in and, and announced that they were going to feed uh, fund this sort of federal public breeding program along with the Department of Agriculture. And well, Denny, where do, where's this program ending? It's up? ending up at Washington State University. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that it's uh, here in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm actually very glad that it is. You know, I'm really excited about this program. I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes and and how they carry it off. I'm I'm surprised you weren't up in arms that it wasn't like in Corvallis or well, something. Well, you know, that would be even cooler because that's like a 25-minute drive from where I live. But hey, you know, uh, it ain't so bad to have it at Washington State either. That's not that far away, and uh, maybe I can get over there sometime after they get it going. Yeah, and for everybody to understand why this is so important, you know, a lot of the great new hops that we've been playing around with, you know, take your Citras, your Simcoe's, your Laurels, all those, those have all been bred privately, which means that they have controls over them. So it, it, periodically during the, the spring season, when everybody's getting ready to plant hops, when they're, when they're getting eager to grow something, you'll see calls out there. Hey, you know, where can I find Amarillo rhizomes? Where can I find Simcoe? Where can I find Citra rhizomes? Well, you can't. They're controlled by, you know, certain farms. So the idea behind the public hop breeding program is that things like Cascade and Centennial and all those were developed under those auspices, and those are freely available. Right. So... It's a good thing here to have a little bit of that open, you know, sort of open source contribution as well as some of the stuff that we see coming out of the private industry. So, yay. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, the way I look at it, uh, more hop breeding cannot be a bad thing. Well, it just means that IPAs are going to continue to be, well, IPAs. Jeez, I'm so upset about that. I know how you are. <laughs> and then, of course, in our last piece of beer news for the week, uh, there's a new book coming out. Next month, called, uh, called Barrel Age Stout and Selling Out, Goose Island, Anheuser-Busch, and How Craft Beer Became a Big Industry by Josh Noel. And there was a great uh, article on Paste Magazine uh, talking about five things I learned about AB InBev while reading Barrel Age Stout and Selling Out. And, of course, if you've followed the program for a while, you know that we're big fans of talking about this, uh, even though we try not to so much. But uh, it really is sort of an in-depth examination of Goose Island and that whole purchase. And, of course, one of the very first things that is listed in there is that when Goose Island was sold to AB, they basically put somebody who was a big Bud Light guy and had absolutely no craft beer experience in charge of Goose Island. <laughs> Smart move, huh? Uh, of course you want to do that. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, in some ways, that Bud Light is their big seller, and you know, uh, yeah, hey, let's take somebody who really understands how to move beer and put them in, in charge of uh, Goose Island. Problem is, uh, I think, as we'll find out in some of the other pieces that they talk about in this article, not necessarily a good idea because there's a real lack of understanding of the market. So, I there are other things in there, like for instance, ABI gave Goose Island, you know, one of the big talking points is always about these sellouts is, oh, well, you know, the, the beer will still be brewed locally. There's, we still have full say, you know, we have control over the product. You know, what we're getting is access to distribution and new ingredients and blah, 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 blah. Well, that's pretty much immediately counteracted by the second point that this article lists out, which is that ABI gave Goose Island absolutely zero input on the national rollout of the brand. Yeah, they were hoping to do kind of a, a slower, a slower rollout. You know, to bring bring everything out to state, you know, steadily. You know, kind of like what we would think about normally in the craft beer industry. Yeah, the higher ups at ABM Bev gave the Goose Island guys zero control over the fact that they were going to be suddenly be slammed out to every market out there. And it also shows that you know, I mean, like when you're at ABI, when you're at one of those places like that, I mean, you're so laser focused on exactly what it is that you're doing, and and they have that process so dialed in that, I mean, it almost seems all-encompassing you know what do you mean there's another way to do this which is kind of i think part of the problem part of the reason why every time abi ever rolled out like some of those craft beers that they were doing internally like you remember they had their bare knuckled stout and their pacific ridge pale ale or whatever the name of it was you know they always just kind of felt like not quite there yeah yeah, exactly you know and it's it's interesting because they could be i mean they have the uh the wherewithal to do it, but I guess what they don't have is the drive and, and the desire, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, of course, you know, the, the understanding, the, just that, that little thing. Now, of course, this also plays into point number three, which is that one of the great powers that a company like ABI has is that they got the media to kind of not pay attention to what was going on, right? You know, like, look, we still have a brewery in Chicago. We're still local. Meanwhile, they're farming out 312 to every brewery that they have and, you know, kind of really doing a lot to dispirit a lot of things to the point where, you know, pretty shortly after the purchase, I mean, almost all of Goose Island's really top talent sort of disappeared. You know, I mean, John Hall left, you know, pretty quickly. Uh, his son left pretty quickly. The guy who ran the uh, the Goose, uh, uh, sorry, the guy who ran the barrel program left pretty quickly. And Revolution Brewing Company sort of supplanted them as the true local brewery and took their sort of pick of any brewers that they wanted. And did, as did Lagunitas when Lagunitas moved in and opened up a Chicago plant. Right. So Exactly. Yeah, but, but you would never know any of this just from paying attention to the stories that were ending up in the media because ABI's PR chain is so dang effective. Right, right. The, the fourth point is, uh, is pretty interesting about how uh, ABI had no conception of where and when people drink craft beer. And I guess maybe we should add why to that. Their whole kind of like rationale is divided into drinking occasions, uh, you know, everyday food occasions, hanging out occasions. And it's really telling when you see their list. Uh, For everyday food occasions, they list Budweiser, Bud Light, Bush, Bush Light. Hanging out occasions, Bud Light, Budweiser, Natural Light, Rolling Rock. Indulging occasions. What the heck is that when you're going to drink a lot? (laughs) <laughs> Bud Light Lime, Rita beers like Lime Rita and all that, Shock Top and Stella Artois, partying occasions, but I guess that's different than indulging. They had Bud Light Platinum, Budweiser Black Crown, Bex, and the Rita beers. 
relaxing occasions. <laughs> oh man, Budweiser, Bud Light, Bush, and Bush Light. But those are the same ones for the everyday food occasions. And then we have the savoring occasions where they have Stella Artois, Shock Top, Goose Island, and Leffa. I mean, yeah. come on. Well, but I mean, one, obviously, this is a marketer's exercise, right? You know, some marketing guy needed to get their salary paid and justify their salary. But it also shows sort of the very extraordinarily narrow focus that they have. They have, you know, this is, you know, hey, this is their world. What do you mean there's something else? And in the meanwhile, you know, their sales continue to sort of slide. Yeah. You know, there, might, there might be something there. Right. So, right. I, and then the last one, of course, was that, you know, hey, ABI actually paid $6 million for a fine in India because of shenanigans. Now, here's the thing. ABI engages in these sorts of shenanigans everywhere. Everything about distributing and, you know, kind of bribery and everything else in various forms kind of goes on across a good portion of the beer industry. It's not AB, just ABI, but ABI is pretty infamous for it. But one of the other lessons taken away from here was that uh, $6 million is a lot of money to pay for a fine. But it, it just kind of shows, I think, reading this book, and I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for this book to come out because I think this will be a, an interesting read, is this is a real strong reminder of exactly why, you know, I feel very strongly about this sort of stuff. And I think you you feel very strongly about this sort of stuff. But that's because it matters to us. If it doesn't matter to you, drink whatever you're going to. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm, you know, and this doesn't this article doesn't even address uh, the control of the distribution chain that they're uh, working towards. And to me, that is one of the most nefarious aspects of the whole thing. Indeed. Well, all right. That's enough beer news, I think. Yeah. Go, go have a beer. Go make sure that, you know, if you want. Remember, uh, we're just getting through American Craft Beer Week. You know, that was last week. But, yeah, make sure you support your American independent brewers. At least, you know, that's what I'm going to do. Yep, that's right. That's what we recommend. Uh, do it if you feel like it, and we hope that you do. Okay, I think we bummed people out enough, man. How about if we uh, head over to the brewery and talk about some beery stuff? I like beer. Okay. Yeah, I do too. Please stick around. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be over in the brewery. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. Welcome back. We are sitting here in the brewery with stacks of equipment all around us. Uh, nothing really actually brewing today, but we're going to talk about some interesting yeast info. A while back, we talked about how uh, a strain of yeast called diastaticus, or uh, what do you what do you, what'd you call it? Uh, well, it's it's just a um, a sub variety, right? right. Yeah. You know, so it's uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae var diastaticus. Right. 
Right. So, uh, so it has been showing up, uh, in some beers when it really wasn't intended to be there and causing problems. Why East put out a statement, uh, about how they feel about it and what they're doing about it. Uh, why don't you go through that, Drew? Yeah. So the statement from Why East, I mean, obviously, you know, there's a lot of people doing a lot of sort of freaking out about VAR diastatic is showing up in the brewery and why East laid out exactly what VAR diastatics is, which is basically, you know, at least clinically speaking, it's a, a strain of yeast that will exhibit a particular gene STA one. And that's the signature gene that says, Hey, this is diastatic. It's not necessarily that it's going to do the diastatic thing. Now, if you don't remember uh, diastase are things that will break down enzymes that will break down starches into sugar. And turns out these Saccharomyces facies of our diastaticus have the ability to produce diastase that will over time take longer chain starches left in your beer or more complex sugars and break them down into sugars that the yeast can then pick up and reuse. So over time in the bottle, in the keg or something else, they'll keep fermenting. It's just a very slow process. Now, that's not much of a problem for us home brewers, but it is a problem for commercial breweries. And of course, now everybody's going, ah, God, how could this be in our in our breweries? So why used to mentioned a study that was recently done in uh, Europe, uh, looking around for these uh, diastaticus strains. And it says here that uh, just 49% of the suspected contaminations were diastaticus that, that the breweries had identified. And only one of those uh, contaminations involved a yeast supplier. And it says here, uh, more than, uh, moreover, among the 52 breweries with one or more positive diastaticus contaminations, 92% of diastatic, diastaticus contaminations came from within the breweries themselves. Further investigation that showed that 71% of these cases came from the bottling slash filling area and were traced back to contaminants in the filler environment and or biofilms in the pipework system of the filler. 29% of the cases came from the brew house, fermentation cellar, and storage cellar. And wow. so. Yeah, so I mean, it, what Y yeast is pretty much saying is, yeah, so we have diastaticus strains, but most of those contaminations are actually coming from your own equipment. Yeah, you know? right. And they, and they uh, have some recommendations here for how to sanitize your equipment, uh, yep. especially using heat to do that. And they list some of their strains that uh, do include diastaticus, and that's the thirty-seven eleven French saison. 3724 yeah. Belgian Saison, 3725 Beer de Garde, 3726 Farmhouse Ale, uh, the 3739. This one I thought was interesting. The 1388 Belgian Strong Ale, the mm -hmm. 3864 PC Canadian Belgian Ale, and 3031 PC Saison Brett Blend. I've used 1388 quite a bit, and I have to admit that I've never noticed any of those uh, characteristics, but that doesn't mean that uh, that they're not there, and that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and but I mean, I also think very importantly, it's that you know because we're not trying to push a ton of beer through our breweries, you know, it, we probably don't experience the same problem. I mean, the interesting part to me was them talking about most of it seeming to come from the fillers and the pipelines in the cellar area, and I mean that makes perfect sense because if you ever take a look at a commercial filling rig, I mean that's complex. There's a lot of nooks and crannies, and if you're not you know, super tight with everything about your cleaning and sanitation regimen, you're going to experience it. Right. So, and as, as we mentioned, when we were doing the discussion about this uh, previously, uh, you just need to make really certain if you use one of these particular yeast strains that uh, you do a really thorough job of cleaning and sanitizing afterwards and you'll be fine. Yeah. And so as Denny mentioned before, why yeast uh, 
particularly mentions doing hot side san- sanitation or you know heated sanitation. So you know running hot water with cleaners and sanitation elements through it, yeah, you know, that sort of thing. Or doing steam uh, sanitation if you have that ability. But most homebrewers don't, and you know, frankly, I will caution most homebrewers don't go messing around with steam. <laughs> yeah, really, man. And this uh, but, uh, is, you know, even though, uh, as we discussed, this is not exactly a wild yeast, it is a good place maybe to break out the iota for and uh, change your sanitizing routine a bit, just to be sure. Yep. I was going to say, make sure you rotate your cleaners, make sure you rotate your sanitation, and maybe if you're actually really super uh, uptight about it, you think about changing your keg seals and anything else plastic, but I think for the most part with this, if you're pushing your beer fast enough, you're probably not going to notice that big of a problem from it. Yep, exactly, exactly, because it takes a but, while to happen. But I do have to laugh that like all of my saison strains are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, man. Every single saison strain that you brew with is uh, is in there. So, diastaticus yeah, for right. the saison win. Right. All right. Well. Head- now, after the diastaticus, I think we have to have some, you know, other revelations. And Denny, you said that you'd come to a hop revelation recently. Yeah, I did. And, you know, it's it's nothing that we don't already know, right? We're, uh, we're already familiar with what a huge component of taste and flavor that uh, aroma is. You know, you, you can't really taste without using the sense of smell. And I kind of had this dramatically proven to me recently. <laughs> Uh, I had uh, a beer that I had made, and I had missed my original gravity by maybe like five or six points. Being an IPA, that meant that it kind of threw out the uh, the bitterness ratio, and it, it ended up being a lot more bitter than I had really intended that beer to be. It wasn't undrinkable, just not real enjoyable uh, like I had hoped it would be. We had gotten a shipment of hops from YCH recently, and one of them was an experimental hop, number 472. And they said that it had uh, notes of coconut and lime and cedar and a couple other things. And I thought to myself, hmm, all that stuff is kind of sweet. Well, maybe not the cedar, but, you know, coconut and lime uh, have a certain sweetness to them. I wonder what would happen if I tossed those in the beer. So I put in about three, three and a half ounces as dry hops. And sure enough, that wonderful aroma kind of covered up the overly bitter IPA that I had made. Now, it didn't make it a perfect beer, but it made it much more enjoyable to drink than it had been previously. You can you can still get a little bit of the over bitterness in, in the aftertaste of it. But, you know, it really took what was a, an okay but not not really fun beer into the realm of, wow, I'm looking forward to having one of those next time around. So, you know, this is, this is like an application of a common sense thing that everybody knew, but I don't know about you guys, but I don't really consider that as often as I should when, you know, taking into account the aroma characteristics of your dry hops, being able to actually change the flavor of your beer. But here's a, here's a case where it really worked in my favor. Yeah, and I, I think that's part of you know a series that we need to do, like you know the rescue rangers, how to how to take a beer that's less than what you want and make it into something more like what you want. And by the way, I gotta say I I played around with that HBC four seventy two as well. That's in my hazy New England IPA that I keep teasing you with. Right. And man, I'll tell you what, I that is a very distinctive hop. I mean, the the that woodiness that comes out that 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 wood flavor, the cedar and whatnot. 
That is that is unexpected. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, yeah I know. And, and it actually works really well, huh? Yeah, I think so, too. Well, hey, there you go. There's a hop revelation for you guys. You know, remember that you, know, you can always use some hops to you know, maybe improve the characteristics of the beer or at least distract you from the characteristics that bother you. Yeah, and, uh, and keep in mind that uh, the aroma of your dry hops will affect the overall flavor of the beer. Absolutely. So. That's that's some stuff going on in the brewery. I think we might have a beer tasting coming in here. Yeah, I uh, I recently sent Drew a bottle of my American Mild in progress to get his comments. I think that it's uh, I think that it's about ninety percent there. I have uh, an idea for a couple last tweaks, but before I do them, I want to hear what he has to say, and I'm not going to tell him what I'm thinking of, and just. See what he comes up with. As a note, Denny has not heard what my reaction is yet. No, I haven't. And, you know, it's going to be really hard to offend or upset me since I know that the beer has issues and it's going to get fixed. All right. So on to that beautiful tasting footage. It's a a part of our uh, part of a new segment, I think, that we should do, which is called Denny Tastes Drew's Beer. Drew Tastes Denny's Beer. All right. Let's roll that beautiful beer footage. Okay. Well, hey, everybody, real quick before Denny gets back here. Denny actually sent me a beer last week, so this is going to be the first time in a segment of, I don't know, we try each other's beers. What he actually sent me was uh, his sort of next to final draft version of the American Mild. I have it here in front of me in a nice brown PET screw top bottle. Let's see if we can't get some noise here. Hey, we got some piffed and already some nice toasty malt aroma coming out of the top here. All right. And of course, as it would be appropriate for a mild, I am drinking it out of my nice Raven's Head dimple mug. If you don't know what one of those is, uh, well, it's probably arguably the most classically British glass that you can possibly get. So let's see a couple of quick uh, observations here. The beer itself is um, a wonderful light toasty brown, you know, kind of that nut brown, almost newcastle type color with a... With a you know fairly stiff beigey head, fine bubbles, nice to see. Hmm. Aroma again continues with those uh, toasty notes, you know, a little bit of that kind of uh, Zebec or Melba toast type of thing, only a little bit more toasted. And right in the background, there's this kind of low, soft, herbally hop character, but not uh, you know not those uh, sort of Englishy. Herbal, spicy, floral type hops. Let's see. Let's go in for the taste, shall we? Ah, there we go. Okay. So immediately we get hit with that malt. You know, kind of big, big kind of uh, toast notes again. You know, a lot of a lot of that sort of deep bready type uh, note. Um, and then almost immediately that goes away, and we're washed over the tongue with again those kind of you know, American citrusy, fruity hop characters, but not in the sort of big puncher in the face, puncher in the nose type, puncher in the tongue type thing. But there is actually a very firm bitterness uh, in the back end here. Um, and then a little bit of a minerality, a little bit of that kind of almost Englishy uh, minerality. And I don't know if that's Denny's water. He'll tell you later. Time to go for another taste. A little bit more fruitiness on the nose. And as that CO2 starts to, you know, kind of roll out of solution, 
again, we're getting that minerality, but now the, the toast has kind of become a long toasty finish. And I think that's actually what I'm getting in the finish more than anything else. You know, we get that mid-wash of hops, that little bit of bitterness that actually kind of lingers for a while. But then the malt character is, you know, largely toasty. So I think for me, I would probably, if this were my beer and not Denny's beer, I would probably adjust the bitterness just a little bit, uh, kind of pull it uh, pull it back a little bit more. But I really like where we're getting that mid-hop character. And I might kind of uh, look at the malt structures a little bit to pull back that toast and get it a little bit more of a sort of a clean break to the finish. But, you know, all in all, for something that's supposed to be a mild and supposed to be American character, this does a, this does a pretty good version of the trick. Yeah, I wouldn't mind drinking this. So I think Denny's going to have uh, either this one or the final version on at the Portland Homebrew Con. So make sure you go find it because, hey, who knows? It might be a brand new style. Cheers. All right. Well, hey, so there you go. There's our first example of uh, Drew Taste Denny's Beer, Denny Taste Drew's Beer, or, you know, two idiots brewing and sharing beers. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, th- this means I assume that you will actually send me some of your beer sometime. Oh, yeah. I'm going to send you my hazy IPA. Okay. I'm I'm ready, man. Bring it on. There you go. I may even send you one of my saisons since I'll know you like one of those. Yeah, right. Okay. Now that uh, Drew has had a chance to have yet another beer, we're going to get out of here. We're going to head over to the lab, and we're going to talk about uh, some feedback we got about our cryo experiment and the write-up that Drew did. So stick around. We'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. We're sitting here in the lab. The uh, Jacob's Ladder is going. There's uh, all the uh, experimental stuff happening all around. And we're going to start off by uh, talking about uh, the write-up that we did for our cryo-hop experiment. Uh, Drew, you want to run it down? Sure. So if you listened to the last episode, you heard us talking with the Igors, talking about, hey, you know, this is what we got out of the experiment. And I think the big thing was between the time that we did that recording and the time that I did the write-up, I kind of underwent a shift of, you know, sort of how to think about things. You know, when we when we did the experiment, I think we were all like sort of in this frame of mind, like, oh, the the cryo hops are going to be this sort of revelatory thing. You know, it's going to really change our minds. And then, of course, and I think that led to us feeling kind of confused about the results that we were seeing. And then, of course, walking away and sitting down and uh, digesting it for a while. I sort of had a V8 moment, slapped my forehead and went, well, of course we didn't see the results that we thought we were going to because we were doing exactly what YCH you know, says you should do with cryo hops to replace your T90 pellets. Not as a, you know, sort of a, hey, here's a way to get a boost in your beer, but hey, here's what happens if you actually use cryo instead of T90. 
Duh. And so, right. Not always the swiftest boat, <sighs> particularly when I haven't had my coffee in the morning. Well, you know what, man? I, I think that that's something that we both overlooked. Yeah. Uh, but sitting down and doing the write-up, kind of looking through it, it was like, oh, well, yeah, of course. So for the exact purpose of what that experiment ended up being, you know, while we were doing it was basically that if you're trying to do this one to half substitution that YCH recommends for T90, aka traditional hop pellets, to your cryo hops, you know, then yeah, the experiment actually worked. The tasters couldn't reliably tell a difference between the two. Yeah, so I thought that was kind of interesting. And walking through, and of course, we had a lot of great shots from the Igors, including a lot of really great shots of uh, uh, beer recipes, uh, or uh, a lot of great shots of beer glasses with the pretty, pretty colors. And overall, I mean, I think the big thing was that all of our Igors walked away with sort of a, a, a takeaway that, hey, you know, this worked. Yeah, but we didn't get anything spectacular out of it. So some of the things that we talked about with the Igors afterwards was, you know, maybe it'd be fun to try this again, but this time goose it, do a one-to-one replacement. Yeah, it'd go one ounce of T90 for one ounce of cryo, right? And see if you if you can really tell a difference there. In theory, you should be able to. But uh, the write-up is now up on the website. We'll make sure to include a link in the show notes. You know, go dig through it. There's a lot of interesting data in there. If you like tables, we are actually going to be getting... Uh, we hope here shortly, some additional numerical data. We know how you people are about your numbers. We're going to get some additional numerical data showing exactly what we're going to see in some of the beers. And kind of interesting, some of these beers will be a little bit older and we'll see if we have some difference between cryo versus T90 when you get a little more age on there too. Yeah, you know, um, and as I mentioned uh, earlier, my results were different than the Igor's, but that's because I tend to use a lot more of the cryo hops than they did. And what I'm finding is I'm getting a, a much longer lasting hop character in my beers from them. But let's let's see what the numbers have to say and what other people have to say after their beers age for a while. Yep. All right. And so we got some feedback about the experiment. Of course, of course, we're going to get feedback. Uh, anytime you write something on the Internet, you get feedback, hopefully. And the first one comes from uh, Bob Farrell, who had quoted on our Facebook page saying, I was unsatisfied with the experiment as using suggested dosing should not have shown any impactful difference in flavor or aroma, which is exactly what we just said. Uh, for the home brewer, I think the advantage for cryo hops is that one could dry hop for a longer period of time without getting the vegetable off flavors from conventional pellets. That might be a worthy experiment. Dry hop with both forms for 14 days and see what happens. Now, I'm perfectly willing to do that. I think that might be interesting. It does kind of run uh, directly into the into sort of the wall of some of the experiments that people have done out there showing that, you know, dry hopping for any longer than seven days doesn't tend to increase the aroma to begin with. Uh, so it may, I don't know, might be interesting. I don't know if you'll, if you'll get more oil saturation into the beer over that period of time, but it's yeah, worth a shot. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting concept. I'm skeptical. That's why science. That's right. All right, and then uh, another piece of feedback comes from Blake Park. Uh, it says, while listening to episode 66 with the results from the cryohop experiment, I thought I would share my own experience. I moved from the East Coast to Indiana about two years ago and was excited for an anticipated surplus of zombie dust from Three Floyds. When I moved here, I discovered just how hard it is to get your hands on the stuff. You have to be at the store on shipment days. Sales are usually done by the single 12-ounce bottle, and the cost is pretty crazy, too. It's a good beer, but just not worth the effort for me. I'm with you. After getting fed up with the process, I decided to make my own batch to keep around. I used this recipe, but noticed that my homebrew store had Citra Cryo Hops. I adjusted my amounts to be close to the IBU with the elevated AA percentages and went for it. I used the Cryo Hops all the way through the brewing process from the first wort hop to the dry hop in the keg, and have been very pleased with the results. I've also shared it with some local friends who have had the original from before zombie dust took off, and they say it's close enough to compete with the real thing. 
The best part is that the cost of the cryo-hops is less than double the cost of an ounce of citra pellets, so I also get to save some money on this hop bill. I highly encourage people to check out cryo-hops and make an overall choice with price, flavor, and aroma both in mind. So there you go. That's very interesting, yeah, because one of the uh, things that you hear people say is, oh, cryo-hops are just too expensive to use, and obviously Blake doesn't think so. Well, and I think we'd have to do a, a sort of a calculation there, but it may be that in terms of doing recommended usage, cryo hops do pencil out. I know that that's one of the selling points of YCH has that and along with less beer absorption, which doesn't right. matter to homebrewers right. as much. Right. Uh, and then finally, one last uh, critical piece of feedback uh, comes from a beer for me for you on Reddit, who says, I have used cryo hops a bunch, loaded up when they first came out, hoping for something special. That hasn't been the case at all, which goes right along with your findings in the brewlosophy experiment. I've used them in really high amounts, too, and at the end of the day, don't think they're worth the added cost. I say this as a home brewer. Maybe the savings in beer will make it worth it for brewers, even if it doesn't have a big flavor impact on their beer. Looking at your results as objectively as I can and combining them with the brewlosophy experiment and my own usage of cryo hops, I'm personally comfortable concluding that there's nothing special about these except that they come up with less leafy material. I can see how this might be practical on a large scale, but the cost of cryo far outweighs any benefits. Well, see. There you go. Yeah, you know what? And these uh, these comments pretty much mirror what uh, we got from the Igors with some people finding that the cryohops did a great job for them and others finding that uh, they they really didn't make any difference. Uh, I'm I'm in the great job camp. I've had really good results from them, although I like I said I use them differently. But like anything else, it has to do with your own subjective tastes and how you perceive things and what you think is worth it. Absolutely. But also, by the way, I know uh, Beer For Me, For You, he he and I went uh, around and around a little bit on Reddit on some of this stuff. And I mean, look, this is good. I mean, this is exactly what we want to see people take out of these experiments to look at their own experience, look at the stuff we're putting out there, look at the stuff Brewlosophy is putting out there, look at the stuff that everybody else is putting out there and use all that as data to, you know, find what works for you. Right, right. And finally, before we get out of the brewery, we have an announcement about another experiment coming up. Yeah, so in short order, you know, one of the hot things right now as we head into summer is uh, people are starting to think about loggers and more and more craft breweries are are offering loggers out there to the world, which, hey, you know what? I'll take it. A good lager is a good thing, and I'm happy to have a nice, tasteful craft lager. And, of course, the problem's always been, you know, hey, you know, you got to take this long period of time. takes, you know, Budweiser infamously takes 45 days to make. Uh but of course, there have been people out there who have been proposing different sort of sped up uh, lager schedules. So, you know, the most infamous one is, or the most famous one is the Narzis uh, uh, fermentation schedule. And the idea is basically, hey, you know, uh, start your ferment uh, cold, you know, run there for a period of time, you know, for a certain amount of your gravity, raise it up, keep raising it up uh, every couple of days until finally you're up at ale temperatures and then basically crash and go. And the proponents of this, you know, that includes folks at Brewlosophy, includes uh, Mike McDowell from over on the Brewing Network. You know, they say, hey, you know, look, you can make a good lager in this period of time using this non-traditional method. And it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really impact the overall character of the beer. So we're having the Igors go after it. And we're going to have them do a version of very much a Taste of McDowell's uh, method uh, on how to do a modified Narzis. And they're going to go and, you know, bring them in front of tasters and see if tasters can actually tell a difference. And we're going to have them actually use our simple Hellas recipe, which is on the, the website. And it is about as dumb a recipe as you can get for five and a half gallons. It's nine and a half pounds of Pilsner malt and a half a pound of Carahel. And then a quarter ounce of Magnum because me. And then like one ounce of Hollow Tower Middle Fruit or some Hollow Tower strain for 30 minutes. 
and ferment with your favorite lager strain and go. So simple recipe, simple choices. Let's see what the Igors come back with and uh, see if the, see if people can actually tell the difference and see if you can't pull off a lager in a speedy fashion without you know sacrificing too much quality. Okay, there it is. That'll be coming up eventually. Uh, when, when are the results due in from that? Do you remember? I think we'll have the results in June. Okay. So people should see those in short order. Okay, sounds great. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll be over in the lounge listening to an interview that Drew did with Dick Cantwell about his new book, Eclectic IPA. So stick around. YCH Hops is a grower-owned global hop company located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers. YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Welcome to the lounge, where we're lounging. Are you comfy? I'm always comfy. I've got my comfy pants on. I've got my comfy beer glass. i got my comfy chair. I'm comfy. As long as you've got pants on, then uh, then I'm okay. Yeah. Well, hey, yeah, we we got we got to keep this a family show. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you had a chance to talk to the legendary and knows what he's doing guy, Dick Cantwell. Recently. Yeah, for those of our listeners who don't know, Dick Cantwell was well. I mean, I think what he worked at Pike Brewing Company way back in the day. He's he's been bouncing around the craft beer industry for, well, as long as there's been a craft beer industry. Yeah, that's right. Probably most famously known for you know, being one of the partners and founders of Legion Brewing Company. And then after Legion was sold to Anheuser-Busch, he left, floated around the craft beer industry for a while, and then came back into the craft beer industry by helping to save Magnolia Brewing Company, which is where he was when I was talking to him. And it, well, in that period of time, while he's floating around, you know, Legion has always been known for doing IPAs. Obviously, the Pacific Northwest is known for a lot of Copy stuff. So Dick sat down and wrote a book uh, called Eclectic IPA, all kind of about how to play around with your IPA and do something more than just dry hop the ever living poo out of it. And so we sat down and talked for about, I don't know, a half hour or so, digging into well, what exactly does he mean by an eclectic IPA and you know what does he think about the current state of IPA anyway? Okay, so uh, sit back, relax, grab a beer, unless you're driving, and let's listen to this really interesting uh, discussion that Drew had with Dick Cantwell about eclectic IPA. At some point, I have to go back and help with knockout. We're brewing, we're brewing a rosemary IPA today. Well, how very appropriate. All right, well, hey, I'm here on the phone. I've got, uh, well, I've got a brewer who's got a brand new book out. Uh, uh, Dick Cantwell is here. Uh, Dick, why don't you say hello to all the listeners? Uh, hi. All right, and so the book that is now coming out is Eclectic IPA. And I guess before we dig into the into the book, uh, let's talk a little bit of the the biography, so people know why they should listen to you about IPA. <laughs> well, uh, aside from the fact that I've been a brewer in the Northwest for almost the last thirty years, that's probably the the biggest thing. Um, 
but I've been in the I've been in the craft brewing industry since uh, since I moved to Seattle in 1990. Uh, worked at a number of places in Seattle. Started the Legion Brewing Company in 1996, and I left there after the company was sold against my wishes to Anheuser Busch. And uh, now I'm at Magnolia Brewing in San Francisco. And over the years, boy, we've made I've made a lot of different IPAs. Uh, from things made with jasmine to today, actually, I'm brewing a rosemary IPA here in San Francisco. Uh, but the list goes on and on. Well, I was going to say, I remember uh, way back in the day, I think like around 2001, I went up to Seattle for one of those long extended technical business trips where I was working in some data center, you know, something very boring with computers and wandering around Seattle and, and stopping in Elysian and stopping in at other places. And yeah, even back then, it seemed like at least in the Pacific Northwest, that IPA had kind of gotten that foothold going. Do you kind of recall like when IPA really first kind of became like, oh, okay, I guess that's what we're brewing now? Well, yeah, um, I think I really think it goes back to the late '80s. Um, you know, because as craft breweries were getting started, uh, people were were one by one sort of rediscovering styles that had almost died out in their countries of origin. IPA was one of them. Porter was one. Barley wine was another. And those were some of the styles that, that craft brewers and home brewers just sort of picked up because they wanted to see what they were like because there wasn't much in the way of commercial examples. But by the early 90s, I'd say IPA was, was really catching hold. I have a personal theory that a lot of the spread of the IPA style um, has to do with uh, a single homebrewing club in the Bay Area called the San Andreas Malts. There's a whole bunch of people who were malts who became familiar with the, you know, local versions of IPA that were being produced, like Anchor Liberty, which is sort of a proto-IPA, and Sierra Nevada Celebration, which was very much its own beer. You know, they became familiar with those, and they started brewing them. And then when they when they left the club and moved out to to professional brewing jobs in Seattle at Big Time Brewing, uh, where I worked actually too, uh, or at Steelhead in Eugene, Terry Ferrendorf, Grant Johnson was at Marin, Phil Moeller at Rubicon. All those people started brewing sort of signature IPAs. And those were the beers that other craft brewers were looking to for examples. So I don't know. It, it's I think it's really interesting. There are a lot of reasons why it spread, but that's one of my favorite pet theories and and of course the malts are one of those other old school uh, homebrew clubs I, uh, unfortunately i think they're they're no longer but they were they were instrumental here in california along with uh, my club the maltos falcons in terms of getting things legalized in terms of homebrewing so good good old knowledge there um now so you i mean i think it's it's fair to say that recent in recent times yeah it, the beer industry has kind of shifted, right? You know, it's gone from, hey, you know, I've got my my four cores and then a seasonal to now everything is, you know, constantly on sort of a special, a seasonal, hey, that's a new beer, come back and try uh, try this thing. And it seems like in a lot of ways, IPA is really sort of one of the, the, the key pieces to that. You know, Ed, do you see that uh, even now at Magnolia? Oh yeah, I mean it, it's a. I mean, first of all, I think it's a rare day, a rare, rare brewery experience where you don't encounter at least one IPA on offer in just about any tap lineup. Um, well, Magnolia, you know, since I I've been there working there since uh, August of this last year, 2017. We officially took over in October, and I inherited a, a lineup of uh, mostly traditional English beers. 
And of course, IPA has its place there. Magnolia made an English IPA and a more American style IPA. But if you look at our lineup now, I think we've got four of them on of varying types. So yes, I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, it's, I think it's the dominant style in craft and it's also my favorite style. So yes, we're definitely seeing a lot of Magnolia. Well, so now that begs the question then. So when did you discover IPA? When did, when did that become your favorite style? Well, I remember I, uh, I homebrewed one. I think that might've been the first time I, I had one. <laughs> and, you know, so I was going from a, from a recipe that I had. Um, and, you know, I can, I can practically taste it in my memory. Um, it was, um, I, and I try, it was a, it was more of an English one. So I remember some of that English hop character. Um, and then when I went to, uh, when I first went to England a, a couple of years later, uh, or actually, no, I'd been to England by then. So I'd, I'd had beers that were called IPA, but in, in England, a lot of the IPAs were, were pretty low gravity, not all that strong. They were really just pale ales that were sort of dragging the, the moniker along with them for sort of historical appeal. But I wouldn't say that they conformed to anybody's idea today of what an IPA was. Um, so I guess, I guess the first time I really felt like I was drinking one was that time that I made one myself. Do you remember what hops were in that? Was that like old school American, like Cascade and Chinook and all that sort of thing? Or You know, if I could, if I could access the recipe on the floppy disk that I had all those recipes <laughs> on, I could probably tell you, but I don't really remember. I imagine I made an effort to use some English hops, though. Well, and... I have to laugh because when you talk about English IPAs the way they are, and of course there's a lot of research out there about, you know, like how that morphed over time and, you know, what was really appropriate term for an IPA. But I always remember the first one that I, I think I ever encountered was uh, McEwen's IPA, which I think became the classic for, wait, that's an IPA? That doesn't taste like an IPA, at least to American minds. Yeah, that's not really an IPA. I would say that, you know, the classic example of it, and I do remember this from even before what I was just talking about, um, the Ballantine IPA was the first sort of one that I remember having that I think conforms to what historically and even for today's definitions constitutes an IPA. Well, and uh, I forget, isn't somebody bringing that back? It's been back many times. You know, it, it was first, I think it was first brewed like in the 1940s or something. And and, you know, I think it was fairly constantly available for quite a while. Uh, and it's gone away and come back and gone away and come back. And each time it comes back, I'm afraid it seems a little less interesting. But but maybe that's just me, because, of course, palettes change over time, too. But that I would say that was a benchmark because um, that was that was the beer that both Anchor and Sierra Nevada, I think, you know, were sort of trying to riff off of when they were making those beers i mentioned a few minutes ago the liberty and the celebration ale well and then of course there's also the fact that i think that valentine's yeast at least in theory or by rumor is one of the foundational uh, yeast strains that are used out there by a lot of people so <laughs> it's legacy continues true sure. all right well now let's let's dig into the book because we i gotta ask first off you know in your mind what do you mean by eclectic ipa well the short version is ipa with stuff in it you know, it's IPA with fruit, vegetables, herbs, spices, coffee, chocolate, you know, and, and also I, I, I include IPA that has been treated uh, in wood and IPA that has been influenced by sorrow, beer souring microorganisms. So it's really IPA, you know, with something, some layer added to it. Well, and now then do you find, do you find that uh, trying to make IPA with something added to it and make it good, is it? 
more challenging than dealing with other styles because you have such a dominant character with the hops or is there just a different way you have to think about it? Well, I think, I think more of the latter. It's just, it's a different way you have to think about it because I think part of the reason these beers sort of came to be beers, IPAs with, uh, with augmentation has to do with the development of fruity hop varieties. Um, you know, cause Cascade was the first one that, that, that really had that sort of citrusy aroma that people marked. And that, that one made its advent back in the sixties, didn't really catch hold until later, but that was also a hop that, you know, that became and still, and remains the favorite craft brewing hop, uh, by pounds sold every year and pounds used. Um, but I think those, those, uh, those fruity hop varieties, you know, first there was Cascade, then there was, there was Chinook and Centennial, uh, skipped forward, you know, several years to Amarillo, then Citra, Mosaic, Simcoe, and then some of the Southern Hemisphere things like Nelson Savan and Ruaka and whatever else. But I think those those beers have such a fruity character that in a way, on some on some level, they kind of cry out uh, to have fruit added to them to correspond or or do some sort of interplay with the flavors. Um, I think that's one re- one way those those came about. And that does require a certain amount of engagement and perception in terms of what those hops, what, what kind of effect they have. Uh, so when you're thinking about what, what ingredient to put with a particular hop variety, you really have to have a pretty good sensory awareness of what it's like. Right. So you, you're trying to avoid, you know, clashing, right? So, I mean, that's the reason why I think like grapefruit, for instance. <laughs> Unless it's delicious. Well, yeah. I don't have a hard time with, with yeah, clashes normally. <laughs> I mean, that's that's another point I make in the book, too, is that some things are just sort of naturally harmonious, like a hop that has, has grapefruit notes. Well, put some grapefruit or maybe some other citrus in it. But then there are things that uh, that sort of are might on the surface seem discordant. You know, I use some musical comparisons, you know, like that instead of harmonious, there, there's counterpoint. Mm-hmm. There are things that are surprising and maybe even a little jarring, and yet and yet when you sit with them, maybe, uh, you know, maybe they, you come around to it. And it could be in combination with some other thing that maybe is more harmonious. You know, like uh, we, we've made a, a guava habanero IPA, and, you know, the guava just sort of ties in with the fruitiness, but the, but the chilies, you know, that's a, that's a bit different, but it, but it combines well with fruit and with heat, I mean, and with, and with hops. So uh, um, lots of possibilities. What can you can you think of one that you tried that ended up being I don't know too much like John Cage a little too a little too discordant? <laughs> well, let's see. Um, you know, I like fennel, mm-hmm. but it doesn't. But it's it's not some. There's a difference between something that I like and something that sells. And <laughs> you know, I'm not so sure I'm going to rush to make the fennel IPA recipe that's in the book. I will eventually. But I recently made a fennel beer, and it just crawled out of the pub. So I, I, I may give, give that one a little time before I bring it back. You know, it's so funny. Americans seem to have, at least culturally, palately speaking, a real issue with anything anise flavor. You know, and fennel being a classic example. It is more of a European thing, for sure. Well, and, and uh, yeah, I see that. And also uh, blackcurrant. Uh, blackcurrant still hasn't caught on here because of its being banned for so long but if you go over to europe they love their black currant it's black currant and everything yeah there are various flavors that show up here and there but not everywhere sure so all right now we talked about going you know sort of harmonious and some you know ideas of doing counterpoint 
what other guides do you think there are to making a good eclectic IPA? Well, uh, one other tool is scientific analysis. And I don't think, you know, I'm not a, a, you know, a real hard scientist, but, you know, to be a decent brewer, you have to at least have a grasp of the, the chemical and the biological aspects of what it is you're putting together. Um, but these days, partly as an aid to giving people an idea of what hops are like, uh, if you read the, the scientific analysis, the chemical analysis of a particular hop variety, you'll run into you know, what the proportions and percentages and all that stuff is of the, the various terpenes that are in them. Mm-hmm. And terpenes, if you, if, you, if you Google terpenes now, you'll get nothing but weed references. You know, it's all about weed. You would think that terpenes came to be because of weed. But terpenes are in just about every organic vegetable matter. I mean, they're, they're in fruits, vegetables, herbs, you know, the leaves on it, you know, everything. Um, butterflies, some, some butterflies generate them as a, as a sort of a, to scare off birds, whatever. But if you read the hop analysis, you'll see, you know, various, various essential oils listed, such as myrcene, linalool, geraniol, uh, eumuline, there are various others, there are many others. And while that's not necessarily a hard and fast guide to what they're going to smell like or taste, it is an indication of what sorts of naturally occurring substances might tie in with other ingredients as well. So if you look at a list of some of the, some of the naturally occurring things that have, that, that, uh, that have say, eumuline in them, it's a list a yard long. It's lots and lots of different things, and it might give you some idea of some of the things that might go with that with that particular hop variety. All right. That's sort of the short version of that, because there are other factors as well, like esters and various other things that are the products of fermentation and conditioning that that you can keep in your head too as you're thinking about other ingredients. I, I wonder how much more people are going to get into understanding their essential oils, particularly in light of uh, there was that research article that was just uh, published about researchers finding a way to make yeast that generated some of those hoppy characteristics, you know, focusing on some of those essential oils. Right. And that's a whole new playground. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any number of angles you can run at it from. Sure. So now we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, sort of, you know, all these different varieties of hops that are coming up and you know, talking about where this starts with those fruity hops like Cascade. I mean, these days, so much of the play around IPA is all about, you know, the presentation of the hops and kind of, you know, what you're showing and, you know, sort of like presenting out all these newfangled, you know, hops like the Nelsons and whatnot. Um, What do you think is the next playground that people are going to do with hops now that we've already got like the zero IBU IPAs and the hazy IPAs and... And all of this. Well, I mean, hazy IPAs are relatively new on the scene. I, I find it kind of interesting and a little bit and kind of mystifying how divisive they seem to be. You know, a lot of brewers my age and, you know, maybe younger, too, are, are taking a stand and saying they'll never brew hazy IPAs. And I think that's ridiculous. Um, you know, styles change. New things come. Sometimes they go. Sometimes they stick around. I mean, we all want to do a lot of different and interesting things. One interesting thing about them is the is that they've sort of turned dry hopping techniques on their heads so they you can there there are whole whole new effects of dry hopping when when they're when a different regimen is followed a different sense of a different sort of timing for that kind of thing so i think there's still a lot to not to a lot to play with right there um one thing you know you you alluded to different hop varieties being sort of a cult but 
it, it, it gets finer parts than that too, you know, because it can be a particular variety coming from, coming from a particular farm, maybe in, you know, in some cases coming from a row, you know, like somebody, a, a brewer that has that kind of clout will go to a hop field and say, I want these. And, and they'll, they'll also specify other things too in the, in the processes like killing temperatures and harvest times. And these are all factors that, uh, that affect the choice, the, the flavors and aromas that are eventually generated by those hops. And the more brewers know, the more choices they have to make. And <laughs> I sort of laugh. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little tyrannical, really. If I'm the farmers, I'm not really digging all these brewers telling me exactly what it is they want me to be doing. But, but it's one of the things that's fun and it's, one, it's part of the story. And when you go back to your brewery and you put it on the menu, you can trot out all that information. So even though that doesn't on the surface sound like something new, because it isn't necessarily a new hop variety or a, or a radically new technique, but it's, but it's making use of all the information and the experience that we all have to get a just un, you know, an endless array of effects. Well, I was going to say, in some ways, it almost feels like um, the beer world embracing the, that sort of that wine notion of terroir. You know, as, uh, in some ways, both, oh, absolutely. Uh, in some ways, it's both for you know marketing, but also for the impact that it has, and it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, we've seen a lot of that with geographic derivation too. But I think partly because beer has traditionally been made with, you know, like barley's grown all over the place. You know, it's like when you get a bag of malt. I mean, these days you can have that locally sourced, especially with all the micro maltings that are they're coming coming upon mm-hmm. that are developing now, but. But I think part of beer's terroir has been has been kind of intellectual, kind of kind of artistic. Um, it, it has less to do with place than it has to do with spirit. Well, and then and then of course let's not also discount the fact that sometimes terroir really does play an impact. Uh, Denny and I like to talk about that that time when there was that big hype, hop crisis, you know, whatever that was now a decade ago, and people started flying yeah. Argentinian cascades and realized. These don't taste anything like our cascades. <laughs> well, people should know that. I mean, we have the experience of, you know, new world variety versions of old world hops that are grown here, you know, like American grown Hollertau, American grown Tetanang. They're very different. I mean, they're very different. And yes, the Argentine cascades were very different. Yeah, I, know, I know, but I think everybody just held out hope during that period. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember seeing posts on the BA forum where people were trying to get hops of any variety. You know, they weren't even being, they, they couldn't get anything. <laughs> and if you were a new brewer and you didn't have contracts and all that stuff, you were willing to take just about anything. Uh, well, and you have to you have to imagine that in some ways, this sort of radical embrace of, you know, IPA and particularly all these heavily dry hopped IPAs has got to be a boon to the to the hop farmers in a way just in terms of knowing that there's going to be a good demand for the crop. So, you know, hopefully we don't get back into that situation. Yeah, yes and no. I mean, yes, it's a boon because they can count on interest and engagement and they can count on a certain amount of sales, but it's also a bit of a curse because they've got a figure out exactly what to plant. You know, they, they've got to think a couple of years down the, down the line. And if you've got, you know, jillions of acres of a hop that suddenly is out of favor, I don't want to point any fingers at anything in particular, but um, you've got to move pretty fast and get something else in there. Right. So you've got to, that's one thing that's good about contracts is that they're a way of, they're a way of communicating future actions uh, and future buying intentions to the farmers so that they have some information to make their own strategies. 
but yes, it's a boon in general, mm-hmm. but it's a real challenge to keep up with what's new and what, what people are into. Yeah, uh, predictive trend analysis is always a pain. I was just going to say, if you know exactly what's, what's going to happen next, I mean, why bother? So, you know, yeah, it's a pain, but, but uh, it yields interesting things and surprises often bring about delicious beer and various and anything else, too. There you go. Well, and look, if you get that good at trend analysis, then uh, maybe Wall Street's waiting for you. Um, now, <laughs> right. as somebody who's written a book called Eclectic IPA and that is really focusing on this sort of experimental uh, side of things, you know, we touched on it a little bit with the hazy IPAs before, but what uh, what do you say to people who are kind of in this mode of uh, declaiming yeah, you know, sort of craft beer's obsession with the new, the experimental, the wacky, the the strange, and say that's detrimental to the industry as a whole. Yeah, I, I kind of think of those as the people who they want beer to be, they want beer to be more traditional and, and forthright. It's not like people have stopped making traditional forthright beers. I mean, there's there's plenty of beer out there that that doesn't you know crowd the edges, uh, and I don't see I don't see how anybody could say that it's bad for the industry to have that kind of variety. I mean, it's, it's all about interest and engagement and, and selling beer. I mean, having more choice. I don't see how anybody can say that having more choice is a bad thing. Have you been on the internet? People will complain about anything. Well, yeah, that's true. Well, and so now let's flip that on its head. All right. Is there ever a point in time when you want to look at some of these things that are happening on the experimental side and say, Oh, come on, really? Well, yes. Actually, <laughs> I was just having lunch with uh, two of my brewers at the, at the Magnolia Pub on Haight Street, and uh, one of them showed me a photo that had just been posted of a beer. I can't remember the name of the brewery, but it was made with a um, particular brand of chocolate. Uh, the Ferro Rocher beer? Did you see that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, from a droit theory in uh, Virginia. That's right. And there was like something coconutty in it as well. Yeah, yeah it was their Ferro Rocher mean, style beer. That looked terrible. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's delicious, but it looked terrible to me. And reading about it didn't seem appetizing either. But I don't know. I mean, I still don't. I still don't think there's any reason people shouldn't try things like that. Doesn't look good to me. But you know, if people are digging it, uh, fine. Hats off. Well, I, I'm I'm the sort of guy who's just like, uh, hey, look, play. If you if you make something good, then you made something good. If you make something bad, then well, okay, you learned something. But yeah, I, I agree. That beer, that beer in particular, was one of those ones that was like, mm, man, I don't know. It probably tastes good. Oh, and and it was a goza. Yes, and it was a goza. <laughs> and you know, I it kind of made me think. Well, gee, I'm glad there's goza out there so that people can try all this stuff that maybe never will make it into an IPA. <laughs> Now that you've said it, somebody's going to make it into an IPA, unfortunately. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, and there are some things that might seem might seem not to work with IPA. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, part of the reason the original IPAs were so heavily hopped and so strong was so that they could survive, you know, by many reckonings. There's some disagreement about the veracity of the stories of original IPA and all that. But... Anyway, part of the reason that those two ingredients were there was to preserve the beers, mm-hmm. to, to have them be able to survive a sea voyage of some months and be aged for a long, long time. So then you've got sour IPA. So that would seem discordant. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you, try, if you brew an IPA and try to sour it, it's very difficult because the sour, sour beer souring bacteria don't like hoppiness. They don't like strong alcohol content. Uh, but there are ways to fool it. There are ways to get around it by blending, 
by messing around with dry hopping, you know, when the fermentation is the sour fermentation is done, you can trick a beer, you can trick a sour beer into being hoppy and you can trick it into being, being strong, but it takes some ingenuity. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I've only had a couple of sour IPAs or, you know, very sour hoppy beers that, that really seem to work to me because there's almost always like this sort of, I almost want to say like a, a crystalline acid thing that, that I get with a lot of the dry hop sours uh-huh. that, that just, it, it doesn't feel right. You know, it doesn't feel very pleasant on the tongue. So, yeah. It doesn't always work, but one of my favorite, I mean, it's not an IPA, but the, the Le Terroir that New Belgium makes mm-hmm. is a brilliant beer with, you know, wonderful dry hop character in a sour beer. And probably the best sour IPA I've ever had was sitting with Ron Jeffries at Jolly Pumpkin in Michigan. He, ma- he made a, a single hop citro sour session IPA that was just delicious. Well, yeah, but that's Ron, and so that's kind of cheating. <laughs> that, that man's <laughs> well, just magic. Cheating in that the rest of us can't be Ron, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Um, well, so now uh, talking about that sort of stuff, uh, are there ideas in terms of eclectic IPA and flavor combinations that you wish uh, you know people were – I don't know, exploring more or trying more? Sure. I, I look forward to seeing. I, I'm, that's what I'm hoping that the, the influence of the book can have, because while I put a bunch of recipes in there, it's certainly I certainly hope it doesn't end there. It won't end there, you know, because one thing brewers can be counted on to do is figure out a way to improve on something that's already come and, and made, its, made its own appearance. Um, you know, I, I think most of the stuff that I've that I've written, including the the Brewers Publication or the Brewers Association Guide to Starting Your Own Brewery, are is supposed to be thought provoking. I I can't pretend to be the final expert on anything, especially with my weak science background. But what I can do is get people thinking. I can present ideas that I've had and ideas that I've speculated about, and I hope that people will take that next step. So I I I think there's really no limit to the kinds of things that people can try things that I certainly haven't thought of and that maybe nobody else has yet either, but in the course of time will occur to someone. Looking through the book, I mean, you, I mean, you do cover a lot of ground in terms of, you know, particularly playing around with a lot of botanicals. I was, I was tickled to see a gin IPA in there because gin's my other passion. Uh-huh. Well, I've made gin botanical-based pumpkin beer before, and I'm, I haven't yet brewed that recipe that I put in the book, but that's one of the things that's on the list for, for down the road at Magnolia. I'll be all for it. Now, okay, so now on the flip side of that, are there, are there anything, anything that you've ever seen people try to do with IPA that you just think flat out don't work? Well, I think, yeah, sure. Um, mainly badly made ones. Um, I think the, the enemy of, of, any, of any IPA as, as any beer is off flavors. Uh, an IPA is such a spark, you know, it's, 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 it's an, yes, it's an, it's an excessive style, but it's broken down to some fairly basic ingredients, um, and flavor elements, aroma elements, you know, bitterness and things we associate with hops. And if, if the fermentation is mismanaged, you know, those off flavors will just totally take the wind out of, of, of a beer that's beautifully constructed to, to make the most of some of those excesses. I mean, I, I guess that's sort of a cheap way of answering the question. To be honest, I haven't yet had a, a, a chocolate IPA or a coffee IPA that I thought was all that great. Mm-hmm. And I do treat that in the book because I believe it can be done. Um, but that's, so far, that's been a challenge, I think, that has, has, has eluded deliciousness and effectiveness. I mean, I've had beers that purported to be that, but I think 
they have been missed. There's been something missing. I mean, it, if the chocolate is too forward, it's canceling out some of the elements of the hops that I think have to be there for it to qualify as an IPA. So that's been a challenge, those two things. Um, I'm sure there are others, but I still, even if I don't think something sounds completely delicious, like I think there are a lot of spices that might not work in IPA. You know, like in the book, I say, you know, a curry IPA doesn't sound all that great to me. And yet curry is made up of, you know, a different sort of melange of, of, you know, several spices and each you take, take one or two of those turmeric or, or coriander or black pepper or something like that. Do one or those or a couple of them in combination. And this deconstructed curry IPA can work as long as you don't go overboard with it. Um, I also don't think, you know, I like, I've, for a long time, I made a lot of pumpkin beers at Elysian, and I got so bored with pumpkin beers that were just made with cinnamon, ginger, nutmeg, cloves, and allspice. <laughs> um, that's a spice combination that I think would be terrible in IPA. So, I don't know. That's true. Yeah, I, I think there is like a challenge there when you're trying to do something that we read as fundamentally sweet. You know, and those those spices, because of their association with pumpkin pie, I think always read sweet to me. Yeah. And I, I I know there's there's one out there. I see I see brewers constantly trying to do this, and so far I don't think I've ever had an example that I liked, and that's a smoked IPA. That I don't think I've had one. I, and I remember reading that in in the notes you sent me and thinking about it, and I was thinking, well, gosh, I mean, there's got to be a way something like that could work. I mean, how about how about smoked fruit? Mm-hmm. How about if you smoked some peaches and put that put that in an IPA? So you could get a little note of the smoke, but it would have some fruitiness to go with it. And I think, and smoked peaches are delicious. Um, so I don't know. I think, I think that might be something that calls out for that second and second ingredient that just putting smoke or using smoke malt in an IPA might not work. Mm-hmm. But if you marry it to something else and you change the conversation. That's a good point. Yeah, that becomes kind of blending it into the palate, right? It becomes a, a secondary note, not, not the primary note. Um, plus it's surprising, you know, you, your eyebrows are going to shoot up if you taste something like that and you're at least going to drink the beer. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. I think for me, the, about the half dozen or so of the smoked IPAs that I've tried over time, they've all been, you know, Hey, look, we, you know, we took Rauch, beer malt and threw it into the, into the grist and man, just like what you're talking about with the fermentation off flavors, you know, where like I've had so many beers with chlorophenols and, and that sort of thing in them where the, the phenols from the yeah. smoke just they feel like it's the same thing where they just run right into the, the hops and just do bad things. You know, they they kind of, they, they strike the wrong note. Yep. I, that sounds right. Um, I have to wonder if it's a matter of degree too. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a, an almost indefinable amount of something can be just right. You know, so little that you almost can't perceive it. Well, yeah, but uh, that's uh, that goes against the American craft brewer's uh, uh, creed of, you know, if some's good, more is better. <laughs> or at least what we well, get accused of. <laughs> yeah, I, su- I suppose. But, you know, we all know it's all it's about balance. Oh, yes. The, the, and for our listeners, uh, everybody just laughed because balance is one of our favorite words to ban brewers from using. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always, I, I always ask people, so, hey, without using the word balance, what's your brewing philosophy? And that always challenges people. 
All right. Well, hey, so before we leave, uh, I mean, obviously, Eclectic IPA is just about to hit the, the shelves. Brewers Publications was having a, uh, a membership sale, but you can pre-order it right now. But before we, uh, before we take off and let you go knock out your Rosemary IPA, uh, any other lessons, any other thoughts that people should take away, uh, or, uh, any other reasons they should go get the book? There are a lot of ideas in it, as I said. I, I hope that what it mainly does is spur ideas that people have themselves. There are a lot of charts in the book uh, that treat a lot of individual ingredients and not just individual ingredients, but the various forms that they come in, you know, because what if you use zest or peel or flesh or juice or whatever, or if it comes in a puree or, or concentrated or that you go to the market and buy whatever it is you're going to put in that beer, there's so many choices to be made. And um, I think that's mainly it. It's just, uh, it's just a matter of, thinking and noticing, noticing things. I mean, like, um, I think one of my favorite, um, sort of intellectual sort of breakthroughs about flavor combinations was eating those, uh, paletas de Michoacan, the Mexican popsicles, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they put an amazing amount, um, an amazing array of things together. You know, the, like there's mango and chilies and strawberry and kiwi and all these things that, that make for a delicious popsicle, but also make, I think would make for a delicious IPAs. I mean, walk through a produce aisle, walk through a spice market. There are ideas everywhere. That's really the point of the book. There you go. Well, and, and yeah, I, I definitely was impressed by the, uh, the, the charts and all these listings and, and reading through. And uh, particularly you talked about the essential oils and the kind of the hop chemistry stuff and like listing out like all these different components that I'd never really thought of involved in all these essential oils. So yeah, I think there's a lot of good information for people to dig in here, and I hope that people will uh, go remember to go grab a copy. And uh, guys, we will include a link in the show notes so that you can go uh, you can go get your very own copy of Eclectic IPA by Dick Cantwell. Uh, Dick, thanks so uh, thanks so much for taking the time out of your brew day. I know, uh, like I said, you're you're knocking out on your rosemary IPA. So good luck with that IPA, and and hopefully that that rosemary sings. Thank you. I'll be. Able, I think I'll be. I'm. I'm. I walked over to the park to talk to you because it's a little quieter than the brewery, but I expect when I get about a block away, I'll be able to smell that rosemary. Uh, that's always one of my favorite things, that, that smell of the kettles. And Well, thanks a lot for having me. I enjoyed talking to you. All right. Thank you, sir. Man, I, I really enjoyed listening to his ideas a lot, uh, some of which I agreed with and some of which I kind of was shaking my head over. Uh, you know, it's like... I really appreciated the fact that he's not like uh, all IPAs are good IPAs. You know, uh, he can really envision some things that just won't work. He recognizes that it has to be made right. Uh, but I have to admit that uh, when he got to the smoked peach IPA, I was kind of sitting there going, I just, I cannot imagine it, you know? <laughs> well, but I, mean, I think it was interesting because, I mean, of course, we started talking about smoke IPA because I've never seen a smoke IPA that, that's worked in my life. So I was really actually kind of uh, chuffed to see him sort of take that idea and immediately try and figure out a, a spin on it that would work. So, yeah, right. Well, and his point too was very well taken that, uh, you know, sometimes if you want to use an ingredient that won't really work, maybe what you need to do is combine it with another ingredient to make it right. work. Uh, and I guess if I was going to try a smoked peach IPA, it would be one that Dick made, but, uh, I'm not sure I would. Well, who knows? Maybe he'll put it out there. Maybe Magnolia will send us a bottle and, and we'll see exactly what happens. I, th- I think it would work. I think it's, it's a correct idea to turn it into a 
secondary subtle characteristic. Because, man, so far nobody's made a smoked IPA that I think is worth a damn. Yep, I would have to agree with that. It's just one of those things that just doesn't seem to work for me either. But You know what time it is? It is time to uh, wrap this show up and get on with things, huh? I think it's time to answer some questions. Well, we'll do that, too. So uh, stick around. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be having some Q&A and a few other things before we let you get on with your day. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Welcome back. It's time for some questions and maybe answers. Uh, Well, I guess we've got answers. Whether or not they're good answers, we'll have to wait and see. The first question comes in from Mike Nordstrom. Mike says, Hi, guys. I recently found your site and have been enjoying listening to past podcasts. On a Q&A show from a while back, you mentioned that you were against fermenting in five-gallon cornies, but did not explain as to why. I felt that it was implied that quality would suffer. I've been using a five-gallon corny keg for about six months and am pleased with the results. My goal was to reduce oxygen, and I have enjoyed being able to transfer with CO2. I admit that I have never done a side-by-side with a 10-gallon, don't have one, or with my SS brew bucket, so I really can't say for sure that there are qualitative differences. The only downfall I see so far is only kegging four and a quarter gallons worth of a five-gallon batch. But that only means I get to brew more often, and that's the fun part anyway. Long story short, what do you think are the flavor problems that can come from this method? Thanks, guys, and looking forward to hearing you at HomebrewCon. All right, well, I'll tackle this one. Uh, So, Mike, because I'm fairly certain I'm the one who said that, uh, since I tend to have opinions about this one. Uh, And after all, I do ferment in a lot of 10-gallon corny kegs. Um, My problem with the 5-gallon corny keg is the ratio. So look at that height versus width. Uh, it's a very narrow column. And one of the things that came out of the whole development of CCV tanks, you know, the whole cylindroconical vessels that we all see nowadays as fermenters in most breweries. And the original one of that was called the Nathan fermenter out of uh, Switzerland and Australia. We used those a lot. But the Nathan fermenters and whatnot, they figured out that there was sort of this ideal ratio in terms of yeast circulation and uh, you know, keeping the yeast moving naturally so that it would continue to ferment. So one of the problems I have is that the ratio of a five-gallon corny keg is all wrong uh, from that particular perspective. And I've had problems with the ferments in a five-gallon corny keg before in the past. So I tend to not like it so much. The other one, of course, is exactly what you just mentioned, the fact that uh, it, you can't really make a five-gallon batch in a five-gallon corny keg. And I like to get my full five gallons. I like my kegs to be full there. And so I find it's much easier for me to use a 10-gallon corny keg, get the right ratio of height to volume, and also make sure I get the full volume of my beer out of the other side. And also because I am in that larger vessel, I can also afford to cut off a little bit of the dip tube 
and leave more of the tube behind without having to actually worry about it too much. So to me, a 10-gallon corny keg is just a much better vessel uh, for those particular reasons. Uh, also, I tend to find them actually easier to clean. And uh, yeah, so I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, yeast circulation, geometries, and you know, really the sort of volume that you'll get out of it, at least for me. How about you, Denny? Yeah, unlike you, I've never had any trouble fermenting in a five-gallon corny keg, you know, when it comes to fermentation it, itself uh, definitely the the amount that you can ferment is smaller and that can be an issue but i just have not had any of the uh, any fermentation problems you've had so i guess maybe you're just special that's what my mama has always told me that's right <laughs> no but I, again i think this is quite possibly one of those things that is sort of old well-absorbed brewer's lore that we would have to test, but I do know at least there have been studies done professionally about uh, ratios and height and volume and whatnot. Now, of course, the question is whether or not that matters at our volume, but uh, that's just been my experience in the past, and yeah, it's me. Yeah, I, I yeah, I don't think it's going to make any difference. You know what? It'd be easy to do to uh, make a batch of wort, ferment part of it in a five-gallon corny, and ferment part of it in a 10-gallon corny, mm -hmm. uh, right? So then they both have the same O2 exclusion properties. And see if you could tell the difference. Could do that. Might, uh, might try. Yeah. All right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, you're set up to do big batches. We'll leave there it up to go. you. All right. So now uh, next question comes from Clint Harris, who says, uh, I thought it would be interesting on hearing the history of Yeast 1450's Denny favorite. How long did Denny use this yeast before it was given the name? Did Yeast approach Denny to name the yeast? Did Denny use strictly that yeast for some time and Yeast hear about it? What was the old name of the yeast? And did Yeast make this yeast specifically for Denny? Well, you get the idea. Thanks again for the show, Clint. So I, I know, Denny, you've covered the history of uh, 1450 before, so why don't you give the Cliff's Notes version? Okay, so uh, here's uh, as quick as I can make it. Uh, many years ago, when I had been brewing for a few years, so this was probably, oh, 17, 18 years ago, I decided I wanted to get into yeast ranching. There was a company in Los Angeles called Brewtech at the time, and I didn't know it, but it was actually run by a woman that uh, Drew knew. I actually didn't even know Drew mm -hmm. back then. I'm not even sure he was born uh, a good, back A good then. old uh, uh, Dr. M.B. Rains. That's right. So she had a company called Brewtech, and I ordered some uh, yeast ranching equipment and some slants of yeast from her to do that. One of those yeasts was called CL50, California Brew Pub Ale Yeast. I was uh, working on developing my rye IPA recipe at the time, and I'd been using Y yeast 1272. Figured I would culture up some of this CL50 and give it a shot in the rye IPA. And wonder of wonders, uh, it made a, a real difference in the beer. It gave it a really, really nice silky smooth mouthfeel that I just loved. So I started talking this yeast up online. Back then, uh, online meant the Rec Crafts Brewing Usenet discussion group. People were interested in it, but uh, few of them wanted to go through the whole yeast ranching process to maintain and culture it up every time they wanted to use it. Uh, about that time, I had also uh, become a member of the governing committee of the AHA, and one of the governing committee members was Dave Logsdon, who at that point in time owned Y-Yeast. Uh, I started talking to Dave and asking him about uh, maybe why he's taking on this yeast and making it more readily available to home brewers. And he was reluctant to do that while it was still out there from other sources. So eventually, uh, Brewtech closed down. They sold the strain to somebody else. I got it from them for a while. 
They sold it to somebody else. I got it from them for a while. And I finally heard that that last source had closed down. So um, I contacted Dave again and said, hey, so would you guys be interested in doing this now? Um, and I had uh, I had been giving some of my slanted yeast to uh, our club president, a guy by the name of Nate Sampson, who uh, is a, a commercial brewer these days. So uh, Nate actually gave some of his sample to Dave, and uh, that's where the the Y yeast version comes from uh, these days, from uh, from uh, my fridge to Nate's fridge to Y yeast uh, to you. So that's that's pretty much the story of where 1450 came from. Uh, I was trying to get them to name it No Tie Pub Ale because I live near a little town called No Tie. They didn't want to do that. They decided it was going to be Denny's favorite. I had nothing to say about it, so that's what it is. Yep, and now it will forever live in history. Yeah, that's okay, right. I think we have uh, one last question. Yes, we do. We have one more question from Declan Catelli, who says, New brewer here, and I've been listening to your backlog of episodes. I'm brewing a Saison as I live in Oklahoma, and due to our backward alcohol laws, I can't get a lot of beers here that I would like to try. I had a Tank 7 and thought, wow, I need to explore this style. I pitched the yeast at 62 and set my fermentation chamber, a repurposed chest freezer, to 68 degrees. I did this at 10.30 p.m. My plan is to either let it go for 48 or 72 hours and then raise the temp 2 degrees per day till I hit 75 and then let it sit there until it's done. Am I doing this right to get the classic Saison flavor? The recipe is the Saison Experimental Recipe I got off the Maltose Falcons website, scaled up to 10 gallons and IBUs bumped up to 25. I split the batch and am fermenting half with WLP 590 and half with WLP 565. Any fermentation tips for a new brewer that wants to brew Saisons? There looks to be a lot of bad info on the forums. Oh man, do we know. With people recommending to kick it up straight into the 80s, but I can't bring myself to do that. Yeah. Okay, hold forth. And now, a lesson. No. <laughs> <laughs> so just to clarify a couple points here. So uh, WLP 590 is the White Labs French Saison strain. Uh, WLP 565 is the Belgian Saison 1. You can kind of think of those as the Brauerie Therese and Saison DuPont strains, respectively. Uh, yeah, Declan, what you have written out here is pretty much exactly how I would go about it. I probably would have kept the freezer just slightly lower than 68 degrees for the first couple of days because I don't know if you have the probe in the beer against the carboy or just dangling in the air. But I do like to keep it down, you know, usually clo closer around 65 for this first couple of days and then let it free rise. So otherwise, I mean, that's a refinement. I think you're fine with your basic process here. Uh, my other tip is obviously the one I've, I put in both the, the guide that you saw on the Maltos Falcons website and a couple of other places and here on the podcast, which is I prefer to do open ferments with those Saison strains. Uh, with the French Saison strain, it's not as important. It's not as, uh, say, CO2 sensitive. It doesn't seem to have that same issue. So, of course, it, it will ferment like a champ no matter what. However, I tend to find the French Saison flavors to be far more muted than I like. Now, 565, on the other hand, seems to do really well according to our experiments with open fermentation. So I always suggest pulling the airlock, putting some foil on it, and let it go. Uh, and as for the advice about starting that thing up in the 80s or you know, pitching warm and then letting it free rise, I agree. The worst saisons I've ever done have been done that way. 
and I don't like them much. So I know there are some people out there who talk about, oh, you know, DuPont, uh, DuPont runs these things, you know, straight up into the 80s and uh, they might, but they're at different volumes. And I haven't actually seen any documentation about that, so I can't speak to it. But in my experience, the best saisons I've ever made at home start in the low 60s, mid 60s, and then rise up into the 70s and 80s and do it naturally. So uh, don't try four seating. Don't do anything like that. But otherwise, I think you got everything else well in hand. And I hope that you enjoyed that beer just as much as you enjoyed that Tank 7 from Boulevard Brewing. That's right. Uh, I haven't had one of those, but uh, Boulevard's a great company, so it must be a great Well, and it's funny. It's one of those... That's one of those beers where, you know, it comes in a couple different packaging formats. You know, you can find it in your 12-ounce bottles, you can find it in 750s, and you can find it on draft. And I think of all the ways I've had it, I still prefer it the best in those 750s. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay, so I'd say there you have Saison info right from the horse's mouth, but I don't want to insult Drew. I would say you're insulting horses, but... Well, there's that too. Yeah, that was my next All right, comment. quick tip. All righty, it's time for a quick tip for this week, and this ties in with uh, our speedy brewing show that we did for the brew files, and that is clean up the next day to save yourself some time. Now, admittedly, that won't save you time overall, but if you're trying to shorten a brew day so you can get on and do something else with your family, your kids, whatever, then uh, an easy way to do that is to just kind of hose everything down quickly and then leave it there for the next day. Uh, if you leave the grain in your mash tun, let me tell you, you don't want to leave it more than a day for sure, or uh, you'll regret it when you open up that mash yeah. tun again. But I, uh, you know, I will dump my grains, maybe like rinse the mash tun quickly. Uh, when the beer is out of the kettle and into the fermenter, I'll fill the kettle with water and just let it sit there until the next day. The water prevent stuff from uh, drying on and making it harder to get off. I usually throw in some Kraftmeister alkaline cleaner tube as it's sitting overnight. Throw my tubing and stuff into that kettle and then walk away. The next day I come out, turn on the burner for a while, heat it all up, um, drain out the kettle, rinse everything out, and it, it's ready to go. And obviously that's not saving any time overall, but it is shortening that into two shorter sessions. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the bigger thing out of that is uh, learn to split your brew day into multiple parts if you can't just take one solid block of time. So multiple ways. Yeah, you can you can prep one day, brew the next day, and clean up on a third day. And uh, that will give you a lot more free time to spend doing other things during the whole process. There you go. Okay, and now, of course, as we always close out the show, it's time for something other than beer, because as much as we love beer, beer is not the only thing in the universe. And this week, uh, my something other than beer is another YouTube uh, channel and, you know, really kind of just a all-around awesome person. Uh, this In this particular case, it's Simone Gertz who is billed on the internet as the queen of the crappy robots, although substitute another word in there for crappy. (laughs) Thanks. He saved me having to beep that. (laughs) And she came really first to light with uh, Adam Savage's tested channel, you know, Adam Savage of the Mythbusters. And she's just this great, wonderful presence on the internet. Uh, You know, young kind of do it yourself engineer who builds interesting robotic solutions to problems that you didn't know that you had, and they may or may not work the way that you want them to. And her YouTube channel is filled with all these various funny things like a toothbrushing robot, a, uh, a, a feeding halo that's designed to rotate around your head and feed you as you go. And the results are sort of Rube Goldbergian and lighthearted and fun. But really what's kind of cool about it is just sort of the whole 
exploratory nature and kind of putting some fun back into sort of, you know, household garage science and engineering. And she also had a one a one shot series that I thought was really cool called uh, Simone's Got Problems. And the only episode that was posted so far was about she wanted to learn how to hunt fish, but she's vegetarian. And so she built and procured her own robots to be able to hunt and fish. Yeah. <laughs> So she made robots to hunt and fish so that she could practice archery and fishing and kind of get uh, get some of that. And it's really good. And now, of course, the real reason why I wanted to bring it up is that she revealed, I think, two weeks ago now as we taped this, that yeah, she's 28, 29, somewhere in that area. She revealed that it was discovered that she has a, a fast-growing tumor behind one of her eyes. So she's actually having to take a bit of a break so that she can go have surgery to go have a tumor removed which is not fun to deal with it at, at that age. And so she's put together a cry for, you know, some, some support and for people to actually, you know, kind of help lend a hand. And she has some really awesome uh, videos out there. So even if you don't care about tumors, but you do care about robots, go check out Simone Gertz on uh, the interwebs, the queen of crappy robots. <laughs> cool, man. Sounds uh, pretty oh, yeah. fun. That's awesome. All right, let's get out of here. All righty. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Or by checking out Brewer's publication for the forthcoming title that's going to be coming out next year that we wrote. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, stand by for next spring. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing, or on Facebook, or on Instagram. I hang out on a whole bunch of different beer forums that you can find me on, uh, including the AHA forum. Drew hangs out mainly on the Reddit homebrewing subreddit, and sometimes on the Slack homebrewing channel. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or just rant and rave at us, you can email us at podcastatexperimentalbrew.com. If you want to get a hold of us each individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can always give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.